be in the book of James. We talked about Christian actions, and if you're brand new, welcome. My name's Christian. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are glad, we are glad that you are here. We're a brand new church. We've only been going for about a month, but the last month we've been studying through the book of James. If you have your Bible today, I want you to take your Bible and turn to James chapter 3. That's a New Testament book. If you don't have your Bible, our ushers are going to come down the aisle. If you don't have a Bible, if maybe you forgot your Bible, if you just want to use a Bible, wave at the ushers. They'll give you a Bible. You can keep this Bible. Uh, you can give it back at the end of the service, whatever you want. Feel free to write in it. But we would love for you to have a copy of God's Word in your hands as, as we begin to study Scripture today. And if you were here last week, last week we looked at James chapter 2, and James asked this question, can you be a Christian without any actions in your life that prove that you're a Christian? And the title of our message last week was Prove It. And if, if, you ha- if you didn't get the opportunity to listen to that, I really challenge you, go to our website later this week, takethejourney.cc. You can click on the watch and listen tab. There's nothing to watch. I don't know why it says that. Hopefully one day there, there will be. But you can listen to that message. And James lays out a wonderful case in James chapter 2. Here's the question he asks. If you say you're a Christian, but you don't have any actions to back that up, are you really a Christian? And his answer is, you know, maybe not. And he gives some great scripture to back that up. Today we kind of head in a, in a different direction. Last week the question was, if you say you're a Christian and you don't have any actions to back that up, are you really a Christian? Maybe or maybe not. Today's topic deals with a different question, and the question would be this. If you say you're a Christian and you tell everyone you're a Christian and you talk loudly about your faith all the time, but your actions are actually non-Christian, here's the question. Are you then just a hypocrite? You know... To be, to be called a hypocrite, to be a hypocrite, is probably one of the worst accusations you can make of a Christian. As a matter of fact, I said last week that the generation that really doesn't have a lot of hypocrites in it, the generation right now between 19 and 25, uh, as a matter of fact, I don't know that I know any hypocrites that I, that I would call a hypocrite bet- between 19 and 25 because that's a generation that values authenticity and sincerity. And if they're going to say they're a Christian, they're going to live like a Christian. And if, if they're not going to live like a Christian, they're just going to keep their mouth shut. But there's an entire other generation that just was raised in Christian America, calls themselves Christians, but then they don't live like a Christian, and the world looks at them and they says, you're a hypocrite. And as a matter of fact, I bet if we surveyed the homes in Lee Summit and Cass County and we asked people why they don't go to church, a lot of people would say because of an experience that I had with some hypocrite and, and I just, I don't trust Christians and I don't trust churches. So in James chapter 3, we're going to look at a little bit about hypocrisy. But as I studied the topic of hypocrisy this week, I found it very interesting what the Bible says hypocrisy is not. And here's where I want to start. This isn't even going to be James chapter 3. This is just kind of a side note. But you need to understand this for yourself spiritually. Because as you look at the Bible, there are several things in the Bible that you and I would We would look at somebody in these conditions and we would say they're a hypocrite, but the Bible doesn't call them a hypocrite. The Bible says that struggling spiritually is not hypocrisy. You say, I'm a Christian, I love God, but I'm really struggling with some things. Struggling with an addiction, struggling with a relationship, struggling with a habit. And you know, the world looks at you and says, well, you you say you're a Christian, but you're struggling spiritually, you're a hypocrite. The Bible says struggling spiritually is not hypocrisy. As a matter of fact, in Galatians 5, 16 and 17, the Apostle Paul says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, so you won't gratify the desires of the flesh, for the flesh desires what's contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what's contrary to the flesh. He says they're in conflict with each other, so you don't do what you want. Paul told the church in Galatians, you're going to struggle spiritually. 
That doesn't make you a hypocrite. That just makes you normal. If you're in the room today and you're struggling with something spiritually, it's not because you're a hypocrite. It's because you're normal. And Paul says in Galatians 5, 16 and 17, Christianity's hard. And you're going to constantly have struggles while you try to, as Paul later said to the church in Corinth, as you try to work out your salvation, as you try to become a better Christian. Christianity is hard. If, if anyone tells you it's not, they're lying. The Bible also says that, uh, as, as we talk about hypocrisy, that hypocrisy is not fa- failing spiritually. You say, well, you know, I, I really love God and I tried to walk with God, but I failed totally. Am I a hypocrite? I mean, I call myself a Christian. I've been baptized. I love God, but my marriage did not make it. I call myself a Christian. I love God. I go to church, but my kids do not live for God. I call myself a Christian. I go to church. I really love God, but I got a DUI last night. Am I a hypocrite? No, you're just, you've just failed spiritually. And failing spiritually, according to the Bible, doesn't make you a hypocrite. As a matter of fact, 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9 say this about the the Christian life. If we claim to be without sin, if we say we're perfect and we're never going to fail spiritually, we're liars. We deceive ourselves if we claim that we're never going to fail spiritually. The truth isn't in us. But if we confess our sins that we're going to commit, it's going to happen, God is faithful and just and forgives us of our sins and purifies us from all unrighteousness. So you say, well, I'm, I'm struggling spiritually. I feel like a hypocrite. The Bible doesn't say struggling spiritually. It's hypocrisy. You say, well, I have really failed spiritually. I lost my marriage. I lost my kids. I, I lost my license. I got fired. I, you know, I just I lost my temper. I lost my cool. That doesn't mean you're a hypocrite according to Scripture. And hypocrisy, believe it or not, is not falling spiritually. Some of you are in here and you've had not just weeks away from God, but maybe years. Maybe you're in a place where you've spent decades away from where you need to be spiritually. You say, well, am I a hypocrite because I've fallen spiritually? The Bible doesn't call someone who has fallen spiritually a hypocrite. It just calls them a Christian that needs to get up and, and keep going again. In Psalm 34, 23 and 24, it says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and the Lord delights in his way, though he falls. You've got to jot that down on the little sermon notes you had. And by the way, if I, if I didn't tell you, you were handed when you came in, just this brief little outline so you can make notes as, as we go along. You can jot some of those scripture references down on there. But the Bible says, listen, when you fall spiritually, and you're going to fall spiritually, when you fall spiritually, God's not going to cast you away. Instead, God's going to hold you up with his right hand. So as I talk about hypocrisy today, I'm not talking to those of you who are struggling spiritually. Join the crowd. I'm struggling spiritually. I hope to have a better week next week than I had last week. I'm not talking to anyone who has failed spiritually. Join the crowd. We've all been there, done that, and guess what? We'll be there again. I'm not talking about those who have fallen spiritually. And maybe you're in church today, but the reality is you haven't been close to God for years. I'm not talking to you as a hypocrite. James says that hypocrisy is something totally different. Now, who considers what I just went through, this list, struggling spiritually, falling spiritually, failing spiritually, who, who accuses Christians of hypocrisy when that happens? The truth is the outside world. People who are not Christians look at Christians who fail, who fall, who struggle, and they say they're hypocrites. You know why? Because the church presents a message that we are better than you. And we're perfect, and you're not. And you're a sinner, and we're Christians, and, and we present ourselves as people who don't struggle, who don't fail, who don't fall. So when we do, the outside world looks at us and says, aha, you're just like me. And the truth is, you're exactly right. We are just like you. People who go to church, people who are Christians are no better than people who don't go to church and aren't Christians. We've just been forgiven. We've just got direction. 
we've just been granted eternal life and forgiveness. That's all that it is. And I think if Christians would quit taking the credit for what God has done in our life, then maybe we wouldn't take the blame when, when we mess it all up. Does, it, does that make sense? You know, if we don't present ourselves as way better than the rest of the world, then when, unfortunately, we're normal and we fall and we fail, they won't look at us as, as something less than what a Christian should be. You know, some of you in here know me and know that I had the opportunity to play college football at Liberty University, and I'll never forget what my coach said to me. I played quarterback at Liberty, and he pulled me aside right before I started my first game at Liberty, and he said, Christian, it's really important for me that you have the, the mindset of a quarterback. And I said, what, Coach, what is the mindset of a quarterback? He said, you need to understand, if we win, you need to give everyone else the credit. And if we lose, you need to take all the blame. And I said, well, Coach, could I be a punter? I mean, that doesn't sound like that. That doesn't sound like much fun. You know, when I win, I got to give everyone else the credit. When I lose, I have to take all the blame. He said, that's what a good quarterback does. When you win, you give someone else the credit. When you lose, you take the blame. You can be a leader if you do that. I think the church should, should be told the same thing. When you succeed spiritually, give God the glory. Don't tell everyone how good you are. Give God the glory. And when you fail, you can take the blame for that. Because that's you being you. And that's not hypocrisy. But James, in James chapter 3, tells us what hypocrisy is. So we're in James chapter 3 today. We're going to read verses 1 through 18, which I, I believe is the entire chapter. We'll move through it quickly. And then we're going to look at what the Bible says hypocrisy really is. If struggling spiritually is not hypocrisy, what is? If failing spiritually is not hypocrisy, what is? If falling spiritually is not hypocrisy, what is? I'm glad you asked. And James tells us. James chapter 3, we start in verse 1. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man able to keep his whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they're so large and driven by strong winds, they're steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on, on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire. A world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. Verse 9, we begin to get into hypocrisy a little bit. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives? Or a grapevine bear figs, neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. So who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom doesn't come down from heaven, but it's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then it's peace-loving, then it's considerate, then it's submissive, then it's full of mercy, then it's full of good fruit, it's impartial, it's sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Now, what is hypocrisy? We know what hypocrisy is not, according to the Bible. The outside world looks at struggling Christians, and it says we're hypocrites. No, we're normal. But there is such thing as hypocrisy that's spoken against, that's taught against, and the Bible says don't go there. So what is hypocrisy? As we look at James chapter 3, 
and we study all through Scripture. What is hypocrisy? First and foremost, hypocrisy is when you are two different people. Hypocrisy is, is when you actually become two different people. And if you look at James chapter 3, verses 9 through 12, you see James present someone that's two different people. And he says, listen, when you, when you act one way with one group of people, and then you go and act another way with another group of people, James says, you can't do that. If you're a Christian, you can't be two different people. Be for God, be against him, but don't be that, that 19 to 25 generation that says I'm not going to be in between. Don't be in between. Be one or the other. Remember what Jesus said to the church at Laodicea, be hot or cold. Just, you know, don't be lukewarm. Get on one side or the other. In 3, 9 through 12, he says, with the tongue... We praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. Out of the same mouth come two different lives. My brothers, this shouldn't be. Can a fresh water and a salt water flow from the same spring? The answer is no. Can a fig tree bear olives? The answer is no. Can a grapevine bear figs? The answer is no. Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. James says a Christian shouldn't be able to live two different lives. You know, when, when we get to the mouth, you know, the Bible ignores a lot of what the mouth has to say and instead focuses on the heart. As a matter of fact, the Bible says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what James is saying here is, listen, you can't be two different people in your heart. You can't have two, two different hearts in your chest. One that loves God and one that doesn't. One that lives for God in certain times and then one that doesn't. Now, you might have a heart that wants to live for God but struggles. You might have a heart that wants to live for God but fails. You might have a heart that wants to live for God but falls. But you will not have a heart who in this part of your life really loves God and talks about him and in this part of your life doesn't even care. Say, how do I know if I'm two different people? If no one in your life outside of your church knows that you're a Christian, but everyone at church thinks you're the greatest Christian that ever lived, you're probably two different people. You're probably giving off two different vibes. I'm a great Christian person to this group. And, I, you know, I'm just a normal guy. I don't live for God around this group. James says you can't be two different people. In James 1.8, he says this. He, he talks about a, a person that says they believe in God, but then their actions don't prove that. He said that person is a double-minded man. They have two lives. And he said they're unstable in everything that they do. A hypocrite is somebody who purposefully gives off a vibe of, I really love God around people who really love God, and who gives off a vibe of, I could care less about God to people who care less about God. It's somebody who literally is two different people. And the word hypocrite that Jesus, by the way, uses often in the, book of Matthew, in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the word hypocrite actually means actor. That's, that's what the word is translated. A hypocrite actually was an actor. In Greek theater 2,000 years ago, if you were going to go to the theater, you'd, you'd leave the theater after a, a night of plays, and you'd say, man, that hypocrite was great. It just means an actor. That, that's what the word hypocrite means, an actor or an actress. And, and in Greek theater 2,000 years ago, the way an actor or an actress would do a play, it was usually all a one-person play. Really, Shakespeare is the first one that came along and put more than one person in a play. But one person could be six or seven or eight different people, and they would just have different masks as they did the theater. They, they would be one person and then they would leave and they put on their mask and they'd be another person and then they'd leave one side of the stage and they'd come back as another person and they would be every actor or every actress except for themselves. No one in the crowd ever saw the real actor or actress. So an actor could leave and mingle with the crowd and no one would even know who he was if he didn't have his mask on. 
And I believe what we have in the church today are a bunch of people who get up on Sunday morning, they grab their Bible and their Christian mask, and they put it on and they go to church. And when they get home, they lay their Bible down and they lay their Christian mask down. And on Monday, they get up and they grab their their work keys or their work truck or their briefcase or their laptop and their work mask, and they put that on and they go to work. And then they come home, and when they get home from work, they lay all that down, and they grab their family mask or neighborhood mask, and they put that one on to go mingle with the neighbors. And the truth is, nobody knows the real them. They don't even know if there is a real them. They are so many different people to, to so many different crowds. There really is no real them. That's what the Bible defines a hypocrite as. You know, I love to see movies, and when I, when I tell you about a movie, I'm not endorsing the movie. Because I've seen a lot of movies in my life and and at times when I wasn't extremely close to God. But the movie that I'm going to mention, I I say that as a, I don't know whether you should see this movie or not. Probably not. But did anyone see the movie, Catch Me If You Can, with Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks? It's a really interesting story. I don't want to say good movie because someone will go out and see it and you'll be offended by something in it. But it's a really interesting story about a a real-life man by the name of Frank Abagnale. He was a kid who at 15, 16 years old, he became a con artist. He was uh, basically he was sitting at an airport one day, uh, and, and he worked in, in baggage at an airport claim, and there was a, like a safety deposit drop box for a bank uh, that, uh, that, that was sitting on the corner of the airport. And he watched as these trucks came in and dropped money off all day long, and he got an idea. He basically he, he took mailing envelopes, and he addressed them all to himself, and he laid them by this box and put a sign up to make sure you put the stamp on before you dropped your letter. So all these people bringing in money to deposit at the bank would drop it in this mailbox with his address on it, and all the money went straight to him. And it worked wonderfully. And over the course of 15 years, if you've seen the movie, he, he forged documents and worked as a doctor for a week. Uh, he became a pilot and actually flew planes around the world and flew free around the world on jump seats because he, he went to a costume store and got an airline pilot's uh, uniform and, and found an, an empty badge somewhere. And he just he became different people. He, he was married multiple times, made millions, lost millions, but he was a con artist. I mean, nobody knew the real him. And finally, when he finally in the movie got traced down by Tom Hanks and arrested, eventually the FBI hired them to work for him. And now he's a fraud specialist that works with the FBI because he knew how to cheat the system. He knew how to act like somebody that he wasn't. And you know what? I think there are some people in the church that are as good at conning people as Frank Abagnale was about, man, I am a great, loving Christian, and then I go home and just I, am a, I terrorize my wife and kids. One way at church, another way at home. One way at church, another way at work. That's what the Bible defines hypocrisy, is not struggling spiritually, failing spiritually, falling spiritually, just being two different people. And if you, if you have some people in this church that think you're a passionate Christian and you have some people in your life who don't even know you're a Christian, you might be on that border, borderline of, of hypocrisy according to Scripture. Scripture also says that hypocrisy is not just being two different people. But here's probably the main foundation of hypocrisy according to Jesus. Jesus said when you judge others spiritually to a standard that you don't keep, you're being hypocritical. You look at everyone else and you judge everyone else spiritually, but yourself, Jesus said that's being hypocritical. And he levied this argument directly at the Pharisees. If we look in James 3, 9 through 10, and, and I, I want to help you understand this text a little better, because this is the root of what James is teaching, and this is the root of what Jesus taught. In, in uh, James chapter 3, verse 9, I, I want you to catch this verse. 
With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing, my brothers, it should not be. Now keep your Bible open if you have it open, because this isn't going to come up on the screen. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father. Who's he talking to? In James 3.1, you can tell who he's talking to. Not many of you should presume to be what? Say it again. Teachers. He's talking to the religious teachers of his day. And here's what he's telling people. With the tongue, you praise God as your father. But then you turn around and curse men. How do you curse men? If you go back and read how Jesus said the Pharisees curse men, he said you tell them their life will never measure up. And you hold them to a standard that not even you can keep. When you judge others spiritually to a standard that you don't keep or that you can't keep, you become hypocritical in your thinking. You know, one, one, of, my, one of my favorite memories of my dad, you know, my dad is my best friend. He was my high school principal. He was my high school football coach. Um, he was the best man in my wedding. I mean, my dad is the best man that I know, the best man alive, in my opinion. I tell people when I grow up, I, I want to be like my dad. I mean, still to this day, that's what I think of my dad. But one of my favorite memories of being with my dad growing up, and I don't remember where, it, I don't remember when it was, but I remember exactly how it went as if I was sitting in the back seat of the car. And if, if any of you grew up with the old, like, wood-paneled station wagon, you know what I'm talking about. They don't sell those anymore, but we had one of those. And my sisters and I used to sit in the back and just fight like cats and dogs. And, and we were on a trip. I lived in southern Ohio, very country southern Ohio. And we were on our way to Columbus. And just north of a little town called Circleville, Ohio, there's a Wendy's that, I mean, I could drive to it today. I know exactly where it is. We stopped at that Wendy's every time we went to Columbus. And my sisters and I had probably been fighting, probably terrorizing my parents. And, and those of us who are parents now know how on edge just children in a car for more than three minutes, maybe, you know, make I mean, you, you've been there, right? So we're at Wendy's. Dad is frustrated. And he's given his order at Wendy's. He's probably mad at us. And somehow the lady or guy at the drive-thru doesn't get things right. And my dad kind of snapped at him through, not face-to-face, but into the little microphone. And as we drove away, I mean, I remember it like it's yesterday. My wife, my, my wife, my mom looked at my dad and said, Gary, that didn't sound very much like Jesus. And my dad looked at her and shot right back. He said, well, I'm not Jesus. And I thought, you know what? That's a great line. I'm not Jesus. And you know what? What we expect in church, we, we're holding everyone to Jesus' standard but ourselves. And, man, we could sit and pick apart every person. Well, they don't act like Jesus, and they don't act like Jesus. And they, Guess what? They're not Jesus. That's why they don't act like Jesus. They're not him. They're not going to be him. And even though we should strive to attain to have our lives like Jesus, folks, we're not going to get there until we get to, to the next life. It's just not going to happen. But when we sit and judge everyone by this Jesus standard except for ourselves, Jesus calls that hypocrisy. Look at what he said in Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6. He said, don't judge, or you'll be judged. This is Jesus now, not James. For in the same way you judge others, you'll be judged, and with the measure you judge, it'll be measured back to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, yet pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? You know what's going on wrong in everyone's life but yours. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of, the pl- out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye, you hypocrite. This is Jesus now saying these words. You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Don't give dogs what is sacred. Don't throw your pearls to the pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Jesus didn't say here, don't help other people be more like me. 
He just said, don't judge them when you're not willing to do the same things. That's not right. He's even stronger in Matthew 23, verses 1 through 4. So Jesus says to the crowd and his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but don't do what they do, for they don't practice what they preach. You know anyone like that? Doesn't practice what they preach? That's what Jesus says a hypocrite is. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. So I look at the world and I, I make the world live to a standard that I don't live to, that probably they can't live to. And man, I, I, I can pass judgment on everyone because I know what's wrong with everybody. That's the attitude of a hypocrite. You know, I'm just going to try my best, but they need to be perfect or I'm going to come after them. So being a hypocrite is not failing. It's not falling. It's not struggling. It's, being, it's intentionally being two different people. Being a hypocrite is intentionally feeling in your heart that everyone should be perfect while you give yourself some slack for being imperfect. And then the Bible says being a hypocrite is caring more about being seen as spiritual than actually being spiritual. So the heart of a hypocrite doesn't really love God, but it loves to be thought of as godly. So it's very important that people at church think you're very close to God, but when you go home, you really could care less. This is all about perception. I want people to think I love God, but deep down... I really don't. In James 3, verses 13 through 16, James talks about this person who who wants to be seen as spiritual, but really is not spiritual. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom doesn't come down from heaven, but it's earthly, unspiritual to the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. James says the person who boasts about their Christian life, but in their heart they harbor all these things, James says those people are unspiritual. I think he calls them. I I, I don't want to misquote him here. He says they're unspiritual. And then he said that type of spiritual ambition comes from the devil. Did you get that? I want to quote, I didn't want to be too strong there because you hate to say that something's from the devil unless it's really from the devil. But James says the type of wisdom that boasts about being real spiritual, but on the inside is not, and they know it. James says that person is unspiritual, and that person's attitude comes from the devil. That, that's James, that's not me. They don't talk about Christianity all the time. They just live it. They probably talk about it very little, but live it a lot. And in Matthew 23, verses 5 through 7, we hear Jesus talking about these type of people spiritually. And I want you to hear what the New Living Translation says here. And you might just jot this down on their text because you and I know some Christians like this. And let me be honest with you. I used to be a Christian like this. Right? When I led Fellowship of Christian Athletes in high school, I didn't love God, but I wanted people to think that I was the president of FCA. When I went to youth group on Sunday night and took my Bible that I had to find from under my bed because I hadn't been reading it all, I wanted people to think I was spiritual. I'm I'm not, I I am evaluating. I'm not judging anybody. It's not right according to Jesus to judge anyone but yourself. But I want you to know, this used to be me. Matthew 23, 5 says, everything they do is for show. That used to be me. If it's you, great. If it's not you, awesome. But it used to be me. 
spiritually, everything I did was for show. He's talking about the Pharisees here on their arms. They wear extra wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside. They wear robes with extra long tassels. They love to sit at the head of the table at banquets in the seats of honor at synagogues. They love to, be, to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplace and be called rabbi. Their goal here, and I want you to see this. Their goal is that people will think they're really spiritual, not that God will think they're really spiritual. When you live your life and do spiritual things, are you more concerned with what God sees or what people see? Are you at church today because somebody wants you to be at church? Or do you really believe God is looking down, he's watching your life, and he's going to bless you for the good things you do? When you give in the offering today, you're going to give so somebody will know about it or because you believe that God wants you to? Jesus said there's an entire generation of people, everything they do spiritually is for show. They want people to think well of them. And in itself, that's probably not a bad thing to want people to think good of you. But when you're doing it just for that and you could care less about what God really thinks of you, James says you've crossed the line and, and you've become a hypocrite. Now, here's the interesting thing about hypocrisy in the life of a Christian, okay? As, as we study theology and we understand God's love, if you're in here today and you've been living life as a hypocrite, you're two different people. If you're in here today and you've been judging others, to a standard that you you don't keep, you know you can't keep. If you're in here today and really your Christianity is all about being seen as spiritual but not really being spiritual, there's good news for you. you. I mean, today you can recognize it, you can ask God to forgive you of it, and you can change, bang, on a dime. For for the Christian hypocrisy, and and I, I hate to say this, but for the Christian hypocrisy doesn't hurt them that much. Because when they finally wake up, They can ask God to forgive them and they can start over. And their life is not horribly impacted spiritually other than the consequences. say, well, what is the danger of hypocrisy? I'm I'm glad you asked that question. Because the danger of hypocrisy is given to us in a narrative in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And I I won't ask you to turn there. I'm not going to read it, but I'll just tell it to you. 2 Samuel chapter 12, we read the story of a man named David. You know him from David and Goliath. Even if you didn't grow up in church, you've heard that story. He was a little shepherd boy. He killed a giant. He became the king of Israel. For those of you who know the Bible a little better, you might remember he was called a man after God's own heart. He loved God. He wrote thousands of verses of scripture. You know, basically the whole book of Psalms is mostly his. He wrote songs. He was a songwriter. He, he was a musician. I mean, he, he was the godliest king that Israel ever had. This, this guy was a good guy spiritually. And then he wasn't. He fell spiritually, struggled spiritually. He, he began to live life spiritually, not really caring what God thought about him. And in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we're introduced to a story where it says that David was up on the roof of his house. And he's walking out around on the roof of his house one day. And, and from that vantage point, I mean, he can see everything in Israel. And he sees a woman next, next door who's taking a bath. And she catches his eye. She's hot, apparently. Because he looks at her and he's like, dang, that woman's taking a bath. And instead of turning around, he watches her. To the point where he calls his servant and says, hey, come here, check this out. Who's that? He says, oh, that's Bathsheba. It's interesting that he saw Bathsheba taking a bath. I always thought that was funny, you know, that, you know, what an interesting coincidence that is, biblically, right? So the guy says, oh, yeah, that's Bathsheba. She's actually married to a guy who's in your army, uh, and her, her dad is one of your closest advisors. And David says, cool, why don't you bring her over so I can sleep with her tonight? Now, no one around him had the guts to say no. So his servants went and got Bathsheba, brought her over. He slept with her, sent her home that night. What a great gentleman, didn't even make her breakfast in the morning. Sent her home that night. 
And a few weeks later found out she was pregnant. Her husband's away at war. It's not his. So he crafts a plan in his mind that uh, i got to fix this. How are we going to fix this? So he says, uh, bring her husband home. We'll bring her husband home, and uh, you know they'll have a great reunion. He'll sleep with her. We'll send him back off to war. When he comes back, he'll think the baby's his. Perfect idea. He comes home, and the husband is so committed to the people he left on the battlefield. He said, I'm not going to go into my wife. Not, not while people are fighting and dying. I'm not going to do that. So what does David do? He says the next night he got him drunk. He said, you know, if he's not going to do it, we need to get him trashed. Then he'll go into his wife, or at least he'll think he went into his wife. This is, you can go read Second Samuel 11. I'm not making any of this up. So he gets him tanked one night, sends him home. The guy still doesn't sleep with his wife. He, even in a state of being inebriated, he sleeps outside the king's palace. So the king thinks, what am I going to do now? And he says, oh, I've got to kill him. He's going to find out. So instead of confessing it, I'll just I'll kill him. Sends him back to the battle line. Writes a note that he gives to him. Says, give this to the commander. Don't read it. Commander gets it on the inside. It basically says, kill this guy. Guy can carried his own death certificate to the front of the battle line. Killed him. Covered it up. Nine months later, they have the baby. He brings Bathsheba over and says, I'm so sorry your husband has died. Uh, you know, you can imagine the conversation, right? You can come live with me now, and I'll help you raise that child. I mean, what a jerk, right? I mean, very honestly. And in Second Samuel chapter 12, he's confronted. A pastor, come, a pastor comes in by the name of Nathan, call him a prophet in the Old Testament, and he gives him a scenario. He said, here's a scenario. You have a guy who has everything. And he had a neighbor who had only one thing, and he took this guy's one thing and killed it and just used and abused this guy. And David, because he was a hypocrite and judged people to a standard that he didn't keep, he said, that man deserves to die. And the pastor said, that man is you. Whoa. He said, that man is you. And then he, levels, he levies down his curses on him, and he said, all these things are going to happen. And David repents, and the guy, say, and the guy says this, you'll be forgiven. He says, oh, I'm so sorry I shouldn't have done that. God forgive me. The guy says, God will forgive you, because that's how God is. But he said this in 2 Samuel 12, 14. Go ahead and put that, that verse on the screen. What's the danger of hypocrisy? God's going to forgive you. He said, however, because by this deed you've given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child who's going to be born to you is going to end up dying. Here's the danger of hypocrisy. When we recognize it, and we ask God to forgive us and we go on in our life. You know what? All those people that we were a hypocrite to are probably way further away from God than they ever would have been before we were in their life. The danger of hypocrisy is not that we're going to die and go to hell now. The danger of hypocrisy is not just the consequence. The danger of hypocrisy is that we may have turned so many people off that they'll now never get anywhere close to God or church because they saw us call ourselves a Christian and then not live like it and they don't want to have anything to do with it. That's the danger of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy at the, at the root of life is selfish. It's saying, I'm going to live this way because I can. One day God will forgive me, and who cares how I impact negatively? That's hypocrisy. So what's the cure for hypocrisy? If, it, if I'm living this life, I understand the danger, but how, how do I fix it? James tells us how to do that in, uh, in James chapter 3, starting in verse uh, 17, I believe. What's the... The cure for hypocrisy. James says wisdom will get you there. Here's the wisdom. The wisdom that comes from heaven. It's pure. It's peace loving. It's considerate. It's submissive. It's full of mercy. It's full of good fruit. It's impartial. And it's sincere. And then he says peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Now I want, I want you to stop right there and I want you to realize this. 
The cure for hypocrisy is living this way, he says, pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, full of good fruit, impartial and sincere. Other than the first one, pure. All the things that give us the cure for hypocrisy are all how we treat other people. They don't have to do with us. Peace-loving is how we interact with other people. Being considerate is how we treat other people. Being submissive is how we respond to other people. Being merciful is how we treat other people. Having good fruit is what we show other people. Being impartial is how we judge other people. Being sincere is how we react to other people. You want to know what the cure for for hypocrisy is? James says, think about other people and how you could impact them negatively. And if you think about that and care about that, that will cure your problem. Because if God has forgiven you and said, you're going to go to heaven, can't lose your salvation according to Scripture, and that's a whole other series of messages. You might lose some rewards. You might suffer some horrible consequences. But God's not going to throw you away because you're a hypocrite. But others might throw God away because you are. So the cure for hypocrisy is before you live your life, you actually think about other people. And when you realize how things you do might impact other people, you live a life of love towards them. Romans fourteen thirteen says it this way. Let us stop passing judgment on, on each other. Instead, just make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or a sister. Quit being so critical of all the people on the outside and instead think about them in the way you live your life and make sure that you never do anything that could trip them up spiritually. That, that's what somebody who doesn't want to be a hypocrite, that, that's how they act and respond. They don't look at their life in terms of, well, is God going to judge me? Should I do this? Can I be forgiven for this? They look at it and say, who might see this and turn away from God forever if I do this? Who could I impact negatively if I act this way? I mean, I know I shouldn't, but I know God will forgive me. But if I do this, those three guys over there, if they see it, like could they turn God off forever? If so, I don't want to live my life that way. In the Bible, Moses told the Israelites one time, he said, God is near you. He's in your heart, he's in your head, he's in your mouth. And some of you, some of you today came in and you, you feel real distant from God. You know he's there, but you feel distant from him. But he's not. He's right there. You know, I've started, um, started working out for the last month with a friend that lives in Lone Jack. And listen, the only people who talk about working out are people who went a long time without it. And now that they're doing it a couple times, they feel real good about it. So that's, man, that's the only reason I'm talking. If I ever do it consistently, I'll quit talking about it forever, I promise. But I get to his house really early in the morning. And, um, I, you know, I don't know if you're weird. I'm weird. You know, we all have weird things about us. And I noticed after going there for the past four weeks, when I get out of the car and it's pitch black there so you can see the stars wonderfully, the Big Dipper is in the same place every day when I go there, or relatively the same spot. And when I step out my door, literally when I step out the door, it's kind of on the horizon, almost eye level. So as I open the door, there's the Big Dipper. I mean, every morning. And because I'm weird, I've started talking to the Big Dipper when I, when I get to his house. And, and here's what I say. Remember, I say I don't worship creation but I worship the God of creation. And, and, I, and, I, and I say something like this, probably to myself. Probably he's going to start hiding outside now to see if I'm really saying it when I pull up to his house. I get out of my car and I'm like, what's up, Big Dipper? <laughs> I mean, I really, this is really embarrassing for me to say. What's up, Big Dipper? You know, and, um, and my, my thought spiritually is this. My thought spiritually is this. If God can keep you in the same place every day and not let you fall out or burn out, 
I, I know he can keep me where I need to be spiritually. That's, that's my thought. The Big Dipper has never said that to me. He didn't tell me that. But that, that's how I see it as I, as I talk to the Big Dipper. The other day I went over to work out and it was so foggy I couldn't see 10 feet in front of my face. I mean, it was, it was either Tuesday or Wednesday morning. If you were on the road, I mean, it, it was horribly foggy. And I got out of my car and the Big Dipper wasn't there. So I got out of my car and I looked up and I thought, ah, oh, the Big Dipper's not there. And then God hit me. And he said, yes, it is. You just can't see it. It's, it's still right there. You just can't see it. And some of you in your life spiritually are looking around and you're saying, you know, God's not there anymore. And the truth is, he's right there. The fog of whatever you're living through may not allow you to see him, but the truth is, he's right there. He's right where he's always been. And if you will respond to God in faith, if you'll respond to God in life, guess what? Eventually that fog's going to clear, and I'm going to show up again on a crisp, clear morning, and a Big Dipper's going to be there, and it's going to remind me. God said, I hung every star. I keep it in place. I know it by name. So I look at the Big Dipper, and I think, God did that. And, man, if God cares that much for some stupid star alignment, I know he cares for me. Even when I can't see it, I know God has it right there. Even when you can't see God, even when you can't feel God in your life, even when you're wondering, where did he go? He's right there. You can trust it. And because he's there, the Bible says you should live for him. Am I going to struggle? Yes. Am I going to fail? Yes. Will I fall? Unfortunately. But should you be two different people? No. Uh-uh. God sees that. He, does, he doesn't want that. Should I judge everyone to a standard? Boy, these pastors, these preachers. Nope, better not do that unless you want to live to everything you're telling them to live by. Well, you know, should I just, if people think I'm spiritual, is that good enough? There's really only one person that his opinion matters, and that's God. And regardless of how foggy it is, he's there, he's looking, he's seeing. The Bible says that the eyes of the Lord range to and fro throughout the whole earth to seek, seek to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. He's looking at your heart. God sees your heart today. What does it say to him? God told Samuel when he first met David, he said, don't look at David like you look at everyone else. I look at people's hearts. This kid has a good heart. How's your heart today? How's your heart today? And, and let's make sure our heart is sensitive enough to others that we're not leading people astray just out of sheer hypocrisy. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now in Jesus' name. And Lord, we thank you that you are close and that you are right where you've always been. And even when we can't see you, and even when we can't feel you, and even when we can't find you, you're right there. There may be a little fog in our life. There may be a little discord. There may be a little frustration. There may be a little conflict. But God, you're right where you've always been. You're right there. And God, as you look at our hearts today, I pray that you'll see hearts that if nothing else, I pray you'll see hearts that are sincere. That doesn't mean they're not struggling. Sincere people struggle. That doesn't mean they're not failing. Sincere people fail. That doesn't mean they haven't fallen away from you. Even sincere people do that. But God, for those in this room today who are struggling, who are failing, who are falling, pray that you'll help them to see that you don't see them as a hypocrite. You see them as normal. You want to help them. But Lord, for those people that you do classify as hypocrites, those people who live multiple lives and they're only a Christian when they're around Christian people, God, that's not good enough for you. And those people who will judge everyone else by perfection in Jesus, but they'll live their life not caring about themselves, 
that's not good enough for you. And God, for people who only want to be seen as spiritual, but at the end of the day, they don't really care what you think about them. That's not good enough. So God, help us to see the danger in hypocrisy. That being less than cautious with our faith can really turn other people off forever. And we don't want to do that. And help us to see the cure for hypocrisy that we've got to before we live our life. We've got to think about other people. And we've got to act and react and live with them in mind. With every head bowed and every eye closed, the first thing we do at the end of every service at Journey Church International is give you the opportunity to become a Christian if you're not a Christian yet. Maybe you've been running from God. Maybe you're brand new to church. Maybe you're religious, but you've never invited Jesus to forgive you of your sin, to come into your life and to change your life and to give you meaning and eternal life. If you've never done that, you can do that today by simply praying a prayer. You don't have to pray it out loud. You can pray it in your heart. And I'll I'll actually lead you in prayer. You can just pray this prayer. Every week for the past three weeks at our church, we've had people pray to become a Christian. And maybe today is your day. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. If today you need to become a Christian, you need to begin your spiritual journey with a relationship with Jesus. Just pray this prayer. You don't even have to say the words. Just pray it in your heart. Pray it in your head. Dear God, I need you in my life. I want you in my life. And today I pray and I ask you to forgive me of my sins because I know I haven't lived a life that's perfect enough for you. I ask you to clean me up from the inside out. And I ask you to change me. Give me a purpose in this life and give me heaven in the next life. Today, I commit to follow you. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're in this auditorium today and you just prayed that prayer, would you just slip your hand up so I can know it? I won't ask you to stand or come forward. Yes, anybody else? Christian, I prayed that prayer today. Now maybe you're in here with heads bowed and eyes closed and you're a hypocrite. And you now know what that means. So so we can say that clearly. It's not just that you're struggling or failing or falling, but you really, God has spoken to you today that you have some hypocritical things in your life. And today you just want to ask God to forgive you. I don't need you to raise your hand. I don't need you to stand up. I just need you right now to talk to God. He's right there. You don't have to pray out loud, but in your heart you need to say something like this. God, I pray you'll forgive me for being a hypocrite. You'll help me not to do that anymore. If that's you and you need to pray that prayer, pray that prayer or something like it. Tell God you recognize what you've done. You're sorry. You'll try not to do it anymore. And then last but not least, if you're in the room today and you're struggling or failing or falling spiritually in some way, would you just lift your hand so I can pray for you? I'm struggling, I'm failing, I'm falling in some area. You can put your hands down. God, pray for these. I pray for these people today. Because you, you know exactly where they're struggling, failing, or falling. And God, you love them. You don't look down on them. You don't judge them as being a hypocrite. You just, you just want to pick them back up. Though they fall, I'll hold them up, is what Psalm 37, 23 says. When you sin, I'll forgive you, is what 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says. And, and when you struggle, I'll help you, is what Galatians 5, 16 and 17 says. So thanks for those verses. Now, God, we just pray today in Jesus' name.
that you'll do big things through the people in this church by connecting their heart to yours and by seeing us be sincere people, not perfect people, but sincere people. May we catch people's attention with how we're trying to live for you and love you. And may they be turned on to our faith and turned on to our God. And may the fog clear in their life so they can see you clearly. We love you. Jesus, we ask these things in your name today. And everyone said, amen. Here's what I want you to do.